As we begin this morning back in our Through the Bible study, I wanted to take just a couple of minutes up front to do a quick recap because I realize we've come a long way in this Through the Bible study. In fact, when I was going back through this, I was kind of shocked to see uh, how many books we have been through so far. So I put some things on the screen just to help us do a, a very quick recap. Obviously, we started in Genesis. We broke that book down into a number of sections. Chapters 1 through 10 was creation and the flood, or cre- creation, the fall, and the flood. And then chapter 11 was the Tower of Babel. And then I'm not teaching the Bible in biblical order. I'm teaching it in chronological order, the best that I can. And it's quite a challenge. Uh, but we stepped out at Genesis 11, and we studied the book of Job, because Job occurs, the best we know, right around that time period. And then Genesis 12 to 50, of course, the call of Abraham, and um, uh, Isaac and Jacob, the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, all the way down to the end of Genesis, where the Hebrews were in slavery in Egypt. We studied through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And then we got into First and Second Samuel. We looked uh, at the life of David uh, and his son Solomon. And again, we stepped out from the books of First and Second Samuel when we were uh, studying David. We stepped out and we looked at, we studied the Psalms because he didn't write all of them, but he wrote most of them. And we wanted to be able to put those Psalms in the context of his life. We did the same with Solomon. When he was reigning, we took some time and stepped out and looked at Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon in order to put Solomon's writings in place and in context. And then we moved over into First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Those books are sort of harmonies of each other, parallels, if you will. You can take First and Second Kings and you can lay them over First and Second Chronicles and you read them together and Uh, Each one fills in little details that the other one doesn't have of the same events. So we've been doing that, and we got up to 2 Kings chapter 14 a year ago. And you may remember I told you that morning, January 23rd, when I stood up here, I said, put a marker in 2 Kings 14. We're going to be gone for a while, uh, because in 2 Kings 14.25, is the first time we see the name Jonah in the Bible. And so we left 2 Kings 14 on pause. We went out and we looked at Jonah. And then we went through the other prophets who ministered uh, after Jonah around that same time, Joel, Obadiah. There's some question about Obadiah. He may have come later. Um, honestly, I don't give two hoots if it was earlier or later. It was a great book, one little chapter. And uh, we looked at Amos and Hosea. We finished up the book of Hosea in November, just before our Christmas series. And now the next prophets in the timeline are Isaiah and Micah. Even though Micah comes, what is it, about 10 books after Isaiah, they actually, their lives actually overlapped. Uh, they ministered at some of the same time. <clears throat> so, uh, The ministry of Isaiah and Micah actually takes place between 2 Kings chapter 15 and 2 Kings chapter 20. Um, Y'all remembering all this? Okay. I'm just trying to help set some context, and we'll get more into this next week. But um, So that's kind of where we are. We stepped out of 2 Kings 14. We looked at the prophets. We're now in Isaiah, 
and uh, we, that will cover 2 Kings 15 to 20. And one reason I intentionally actually changed the Christmas series and, and finished it on purpose with a, a little peek into Isaiah in our last Sunday uh, in our Christmas series was to set us up perfectly to launch into the book of Isaiah today. Because the book of Isaiah is all about the promise of Christ's first coming, his incarnation that we studied in December, and it's all about his second coming. And so we're, we, we took a very brief look at that in December, a few verses in Isaiah 40, um, and we're going to begin the book of Isaiah today. A theme that we see repeatedly throughout the book of Isaiah is that God is holy beyond all understanding, and man is corrupt beyond repair. Uh, and if we can't, if, if we are not jolted and humbled and convicted by the great gulf between those two, uh, then we really need to wake up. God is holy beyond all comprehension. and You and I are corrupt beyond repair. And Isaiah brings those two together in a beautiful way that I think is really going to um, encourage you and challenge you and, uh, and bless you. And he, he reminds us again and again that the hope of our remedy, the hope of our salvation can never be found in ourselves. And so Isaiah points constantly more than any other Old Testament prophet, Isaiah points constantly to the coming Messiah through whom fallen man can be redeemed. The first five chapters of Isaiah provide a kind of worship checkup. God's people were, as we've seen in the other prophets we looked at, God's people were worshiping but their hearts were not in the worship. It was mechanical for them. It was routine for them. And I think this is a, an appropriate way for us to start the new year. Jaron said it at the beginning, you know, it's so easy for us Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, just for this to become a thing on the calendar. And well, I, you know, I don't want God to get mad at me. So I guess I'll go back to church this week and it's just kind of a checkoff thing that we do. Or maybe, maybe you think you're building up points by doing this. That's not happening either. Um, this time, I've always told you this, this time that we have together on Sunday mornings should always be very precious to us uh, because it can be gone in a heartbeat. And we are tremendously privileged to be here today, every Sunday, doing what we're doing. But the danger of having these freedoms, where there's nothing right now impeding us from coming here and worshiping freely. Nothing. That's wonderful. I thank God for that. But the danger in that is that we become complacent about it. We take it for granted. And... What is supposed to be very meaningful and moving for us every week just becomes a thing where we're like looking at our watch. Gee, man, how much longer? You know, I got to get to lunch or I got to see the game or whatever. It's very, very easy for us to slip into that. And so uh, as we look briefly at these first five 
chapters this morning, let's not spend our time looking down at those people in that day for the lousy job they did worshiping God. Let's instead ask God to give us a worship checkup. Let's consider our worship. I don't just mean corporately. I I specifically mean individually. Let's say, God, really just shine a light in my heart. Cut through all the the games that I play. Cut through all the, um, the facade that I wear. Show me my heart. Where am I on my worship with you today? Is it genuine or is it routine? I could just jump right in and start teaching from Isaiah 1.1, but <clears throat> we would miss out so much uh, if, if we did that. Isaiah is such an important book in the context of the entire Bible that I want to first take a few minutes to explore some of the often overlooked um, background and context and uniqueness that make this book so central to our faith. Um, Isaiah is, this is an extraordinary book, not only in its content, but in its structure. Uh, Let me just run through some of these quickly. I'm not going to spend time, but I I just want you to see this. The Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Bible is divided into two sections. Isaiah is divided into two sections. The first section of the Bible, the Old Testament, has 39 books. The first section of Isaiah has 39 chapters. The second section of the Bible, the New Testament, has 27 books. The second section of Isaiah has 27 chapters. The first 39 books of the Bible focus primarily on God's holiness, his judgment for sin, and his promised redemption. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah focus primarily on God's holiness, his judgment for sin, and his promised redemption. The last 27 books of the Bible are all about the person, the ministry, and the coming of Christ. The last 27 chapters of Isaiah are all about the person, the ministry, and the coming of Christ. The Bible begins with a description of man's rebellion and ends with God's ultimate salvation and restoration. Isaiah begins with a description of man's rebellion and ends with God's ultimate salvation and restoration. The Bible ends with the promise of new heavens and a new earth in Revelation 21. Isaiah ends with the promise of new heaven and a new earth in Isaiah 66, 22. Now, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to make a lot of that. Um, I'll just leave that with you to, to chew on. And that's probably all just a coincidence. I'll let you think about that. There are also some, some things we need to be aware of in Isaiah. Years ago, some, some pinheaded, unsaved theologians in Germany got together and decided that Isaiah didn't write this whole book. They got up to the split in Isaiah at chapter 39, and they said Isaiah wrote the first part, but uh, 40 through 66 was written by somebody else, just because the tone is different. As I mentioned to you at Christmas, the first 39 chapters are pretty much all about sin and judgment that's coming. Uh, The last 27 chapters are all about uh, the glories of God that await and the the, the promise of his first and second coming. And so these guys started this movement, and it unfortunately uh, spread around the world. But 
Um, it's, it's so obvious to anyone who would take the time to study this. I'm, I'm only mentioning this to you today because some of you somewhere are going to run across this. Some of you are going to be sitting in university somewhere and some slick professor uh, is going to bring this up in the classroom and you're going to be sitting there stumped. Well, you don't need to be. Um, none of the New Testament writers who quote Isaiah take any time trying to prove the authorship or the inspiration of the book. Not one second. They assume that the reader already knows uh, its authenticity. Instead, they, they quote Isaiah as scripture and as fulfilled prophecy, the whole book. And every time a New Testament writer quotes Isaiah, every time Jesus himself quotes Isaiah, there's never any doubt whatsoever about its validity. A couple of examples, Mark chapter 1. Mark begins his book by laying out the proof of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how does he do that? Does he give a long-winded argument? No, watch this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and so on. That's from Isaiah 40 that we looked at uh, at Christmas. Mark is quoting here from the second section of Isaiah, the second section that these brilliant theologians said was not part of Isaiah. And he's attributing authorship of that second half to none other than Isaiah himself. One more quick example from Jesus. Uh, The beginning of Jesus' ministry. I love this in Luke chapter 4. I absolutely love this section of scripture. It says this, So Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Again, what's being quoted here, what Jesus read and used as um, a, a proof of who he was, that he was the Messiah, comes from the second section of Isaiah. And we could go on and on. So in other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to understand me, you need to understand Isaiah. That's how important that book is. And it's critically important that you and I, if we are going to understand who Jesus really is, that we grasp the, the full scope of Isaiah and understand how uh, uh, all of the implications that it has uh, for the, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Isaiah is quoted more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament prophet. It's quoted multiple times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, Hebrews, and Revelation. 
Now, what I'm trying to tell you is this. I'm not trying to throw out statistics and numbers just for the sake of doing that. What I'm trying to tell you is this. Isaiah is a monumentally important book. If you were to survey, sort of stand at a distance, and look across all of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah would rise above all the others like Mount Everest. It is a monumental book. And in an era of fluffy Christian books, uh, where uh, many of the authors flippantly reduce your spiritual life to three or five or seven easy steps, Isaiah comes along and he unapologetically pens 66 weighty chapters that deal with the, the real raw grit of man's sin and the wonder and the glories of God's holiness. This is a book we need to get. We need to get Isaiah, and we need to let Isaiah get us. Now, as with some of the other prophets we've looked at, Isaiah, the book itself, isn't written. The contents is not written always in chronological order. Um, He switches back and forth between several different themes. For instance, the first five chapters, he uh, talks about man's sinfulness as one theme, and then he immediately jumps over and he'll begin talking about God's invitation, invitation of forgiveness, and then he'll switch right back to man's sinfulness, and he'll switch right back to pointing out God's forgiveness. This is a technique that was used that is very powerful, actually. It kind of, um, it's like getting punched from both sides. You know, you get slammed this way and slammed that way, and it really catches your attention as you're going through this book. And this is precisely what uh, he does in these first five chapters. So this morning, as we just do a quick introduction, a quick overview, I'm going to go through and pull out for you these, uh, from, from these opening chapters, the places where God is addressing his people about their sin, because sadly, that's what, um, I guess, gives the reason for the rest of the book of Isaiah. It's because of our sin that Christ had to come. It's because of our sin that he was despised and rejected and murdered on a cross. Um, this is vitally important that we understand. I don't like to preach on sin all the time. But understand, I'm just going through the Bible. I'm teaching what comes next. So if we have 85 weeks in a row about sin, don't blame me, okay? Because I'm not manipulating any of this. Uh, If we repeat things over and over and over again, maybe it's because God repeated them in his word on purpose. And we need to uh, hear that. But then I do want to close by looking at one of the beautiful sections of Isaiah that shows us the forgiveness that God offers. I want to share four simple points with you today. And as we consider these, um, just notice, if you will, how these indictments that God brings against his people in Isaiah's day are the exact indictments that could be brought against our society today. Let's not lose the connection. This is a 2,700-year-old book, but it is brand new. 
And it is 100% relative to our lives and our culture today. And you'll see that, I think, as we move quickly through these. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. That seems like a good place to start. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, and he's going to give us four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, I mentioned this quickly, as I've pointed out before. What Isaiah is doing here is he's date-stamping his writing to let all future readers know when he lived and when these events took place. Okay, That would be like um, me saying to somebody else around my age, okay, so this happened during the time when Reagan was president. Okay, and we can, if we're old enough, we can place that uh, in, in our timeline. And so this statement tells us that Isaiah's ministry fits into the time period of these four kings, which, as I said, is covered in 2 Kings 15 to 20. And we'll unpack that more next week um, as we look at chapter 6 and we dig into the life of Uzziah. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished, this is God speaking, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. That's the the fear and dread of every godly parent. The ox knows its owner and the donkey knows its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. Wow. They have turned their backs on him. God is saying, as he did through one of the earlier prophets, I raised you up as my own children from infancy. Remember one of the other prophets said, I taught you to walk. I fed you. I've given you everything you need in abundance, but you still turned your back on me. And it's a pretty strong statement when he says, even the ox and the donkey have more sense than you do. See, my my dog uh, knows who I am. He knows where he lives. He has the sense to know who feeds him. And so he doesn't rebel against me. He's smart enough to know, well, I better at least pretend like I like this guy because he's the one who gives me treats now and then, okay? Every once in a while, I'll go to pet him, and he'll go like that. I'm going, what? I put food in your belly, boy. You better, you better be nice to me. So, but for the most part, our, our old dog understands who his owner is. He, he understands how this thing works. God says, my people, they're not even that smart. They don't even have that much discernment. I've given them everything, everything that they have. And yet, what do they do? They turn their back on me and they walk away. And as I said, before we sit here and look down our nose at these people and think, what a bunch of ungrateful nitwits they are, maybe we should hold up a mirror and go, hey, God, how am I doing in that area? Well, point number one. Here's the first indictment against these people. They loved traditions more than the truth. Verse 10. 
Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, it's not literally talking that. He's just comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah, which of course were destroyed uh, years earlier in Genesis. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Here's the dangerous problem. They were following the traditions of the law without obeying the truth of God's word. They were big on tradition. They followed all the rules of the ceremonies, all the rules of the cleanliness, all the rules of the law, but they did it all without obeying the truth of God's word. They loved tradition more than truth. Hey, do you know what splits up most churches still today? It's not doctrine. It's not truth. It's tradition. Tradition. I can't believe they moved the piano to the other side of the auditorium without asking me. My grandmother played hymns from that piano. How dare you do that? They change the color of the carpet. Half the church gets mad and storms out. I'm telling you, folks, stupid things split churches. Rarely does doctrine split churches. Over time, churches elevate tradition above truth. And when that happens, trouble is sure to follow. That's why I'm glad we're very short on traditions here. And in fact, just by my nature, I try to break every one of them that that does come up. Because I, I don't ever want us to get so set in the way we do things that first of all, we tell God, uh, we've never done it that way before. So we can't do what you're asking us to do. Nor do I ever want to cause offense to anyone because they have broken one of our silly traditions. Let's focus on the truth, okay? Who cares about traditions? If you've got yours, wonderful. But we're not making those central here. Never will. Never will. Someone once said the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's, that's what we need to do. God would actually um, later address this through Isaiah in Isaiah 29, 13. He said, These people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but they have removed their hearts far from me. And that wasn't just a problem in Isaiah's day. Some 700 years later, Jesus quoted that exact verse from Isaiah and applied it to his generation. Because the Pharisees followed all the religious traditions, but they didn't have the truth of God in their hearts. And the caution for us today is that this is still a danger. So let's stay alert to it. God doesn't care if we never miss a Sunday. 
God doesn't care if we can quote every verse in the Bible. God doesn't care if we know all the words to all the songs. If our heart is not with him, obeying and longing for his truth, none of it matters. So they not only love traditions more than the truth, but secondly, they celebrated sin. Let's look now at Isaiah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. This is now the second thing that God brings up through Isaiah to these people. He said, for Jerusalem stumbled and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. The look on their countenance witnesses against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul for they have brought evil or um, trouble upon themselves. Again, God compares them to Sodom because one of the most notable things about Sodom and Gomorrah was the, uh, how flagrant and open and unashamed their sin was. It wasn't hidden behind closed doors. It was out in the streets. Not only was it out in the streets, but they were celebrating their sin. Isaiah says, the people of my generation are doing the same thing Sodom and Gomorrah did. They're parading their sin around for everyone to see. They don't try to hide it. They don't even blush about it. Look, throughout history, we all understand this. Throughout history, mankind has sinned. But as you look back through history, you'll see that for the most part, the, the vilest of sins have generally been done in dark, hidden places away from the public spotlight. Generally. No matter how bad things got, there was still a, a generally agreed upon understanding of right and wrong in society. That used to be the case in this country. But that's not the case anymore. Have you noticed just these past couple of years? Have you noticed how it seems like the restraints of common decency have been thrown off? They've not only been thrown off, they've been set on fire and destroyed. And now even the most flagrant sin is not only being done in public, but it's actually being praised by parents and families and school teachers and administration, government officials, even the president, and even by and in many churches. I could show you some videos of church services that would make you puke. It's going on right now. They're celebrating it. Someone might say, well, Phil, you're an old fuddy-duddy. Our generation is just, you know, we're just trying to be more progressive and open-minded about things. Well, history bears this out, and there has never been an exception to this rule. When morality starts to decrease and immorality takes over, that nation goes into decline and eventually ends in total collapse. 
There are zero exceptions to that in history. Why? Just a fluke? No, because God put that law in place. And you're no more going to break that law than you are the law of gravity. And what was true for the nation in the days of Isaiah is just as true for us today. Daniel Webster said this, If we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering. But if we in our posterity neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. Boy, I wish people still wrote like that today. Is there something about that era? The Bible clearly says righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a disgrace to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation. So they not only loved traditions more than the truth, they not only celebrated sin, but thirdly, they pursued materialism and pleasure. We now look at chapter 5, the next indictment. Chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In other words, it's just this continual gobbling up of more and more progress in building and expanding. In my hearing, verse 9, in my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, Truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones, without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall be one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield one ephah. Do you guys have the ephah measuring cup? You get them in Israel if you want them. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them, the harp and the strings, the tambourine and the flute, and wine are in their feast, but they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. He's describing a culture obsessed with self and personal happiness. He's describing a culture where materialism has become their pursuit, where pleasure has become their goal. You may remember from Amos and Hosea, they addressed this culture. They lived right, right around the time of, of Isaiah, just before. And one of the charges brought against the people through them was that they had allowed their lives of luxury to desensitize them to the voice of God. One of the most misquoted verses in the Bible is when people say money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Big difference. The love of money. Why? It's God against money? No. But it's the love of, it's the pursuit of. Oh, it it brings all kinds of problems into our lives. And it, it turns our heart eventually away from God. We've known a few over the years in our missionary travels. Our family has known uh, a number of millionaires who were godly people, and they had the ability to handle great wealth and use it wisely for God's kingdom, but it's rare. It's rare. And this is exactly what God uh, 
had warned them about years earlier. Uh, When Moses was leading them towards the promised land, he paused at one point and he said to them, when you come into the land that God is giving you, when you live in beautiful cities and houses full of good things, when you have water and vineyards and fruit trees, when you've eaten and are full, then beware. Beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You see, there's a danger in having too much. I don't know where that line is, folks. I I struggle with it all the time. There are times when, you know, maybe our family will save our money for a long time and we'll purchase something that we've talked about. And almost every time after the purchase is done, I get a sense of guilt. Like, do, do we really need this? You know, there's nothing wrong with having things. There's nothing wrong with saving money and buying something wonderful. Uh, I'm still waiting for my Ferrari from this church. <laughs> A 488, please, would be nice. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But I just I don't know where the boundaries are. We have to we have to see God individually and say, Lord, just guide me here, nudge me in the right direction, keep me from keep me from overconsumption of things or over desire of things. There's such a danger here for us, both personally and nationally. Listen, I've lived all over the world. I've been to almost every country in the world. But there's no place on earth I want to live than right here in America. God has blessed this country more than any nation on earth. We have seen and enjoyed the abundance of God's blessings here. But that comes with a great danger. And we'd better be aware of it. I love this in Proverbs chapter three, uh, 30, verses 7 to 9. You want to talk about the right balance. I think about this verse a lot. He says, two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. May God help us all to live with that awareness. So finally, they not only loved traditions more than truth, they not only celebrated sin, they not only pursued materialism and pleasure, but fourthly, they defined their own moral standards. Chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. The people in Isaiah's day started calling things that were wrong, right. They defined their own moral standards. And see, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, God is the one. God is the one who established the unchanging boundaries and guidelines and standards of what is right and wrong. And when we abandon God's standard, there is no standard. It's every man for himself. 
That was the problem in Isaiah's day, and it's precisely the problem today. Evil has become subjective, and morality has become relative. Here's the root of the problem. Man has abandoned God's moral standard. And he's made himself the arbiter of right and wrong. That's the root of the problem. Uh, Can I just tell you, as your pastor, um, I don't always like God's standards. I just don't. There are some times when I know God is speaking to me about something, and it seems so niggly and minor, and and I just, come on, God, I can't even do that? No. I want you to be holy and set apart. And sometimes it takes me a while to come to terms with that. But what I always see looking back is, good grief. But, you know, 10 years later, why would I ever have wanted to do that? Thank you, God, for steering me away. But that only happens when we live by God's absolute truth. When we don't do that, what you end up with is a society in which everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And folks, I don't have to tell you, uh, unless you've been living in a cave, you know that that's exactly what's happening in our country. Um, I don't know of one thing, not one thing, that everybody in the world would agree on is evil. Not one thing. Now you think about that. Oh, Phil, hey, uh, here's one. What about murdering babies? That's pretty horrible. Oh, no. We got a whole government of people promoting that. Even now, trying to get legislation through that will allow parents to murder their babies months after they're born. And it's coming. It will come. I promise you, it will come. You're telling me murdering babies is okay? Well, there are a lot of people who say it is. My body, my choice. Problem is, it's not your body, honey. It's it's the baby's body. We're living in that society today. That's where people were 2,700 years ago, and that's where we still are today. So what's to be done about it? I don't want to leave with that sort of dark cloud hanging over us. Thankfully, God never leaves us with bad news. God never leaves us without hope. And this book is filled with hope. Despite all the sin and rebellion and evil, not just in Isaiah's day, but in our own day and perhaps in our own hearts right now. Despite all this, God still extends his hand of grace and forgiveness to wayward mankind. And I close with this wonderful news from Isaiah back in Isaiah 1, 18. God says, come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That doesn't mean much to us today, but to those people, that really must have perked up their ears. Dealing in scarlet and crimson and purple cloth was a very specialized industry. In fact, you remember a woman in the New Testament who Paul ran across in the book of Acts chapter 
16, I think it was, in Philippi. There's a woman there who the church met in her house. She was a dealer in purple cloth. It's a very specialized industry. The only, the only way they could create those deep uh, colors, scarlet and crimson, was to gather murex shells from the ocean and crush them in a special process. And when they did, they would emit a purple-reddish dye. When they got enough of that, they could dip the cloth in it and uh, color the cloth. As a matter of fact, I brought this for you today. I've had this for years and years. This is from the Holy Land. There's a murex shell right there. That's what they used to gather, thousands of these. And they would crush them, and that purple-reddish color dye would come out. Problem is, once they dipped the cloth into that dye, there was no way to ever remove that color from the cloth. It was permanent. The stain was permanent. And the people knew that. So when God made this statement here, it must have been shocking in the people that day. It's like, wow, a new laundry detergent. You know, We've never been able to get this color out. And yet God says, even our sins... When those sins permanently stain us and there is nothing we can do to remove the stains, God says, hey, hey, come to me. Bring them to me. I will not only remove the sin, I will remove the stains and I will make you whiter than snow. What fantastic news. What glorious hope for us to hear after such a dark, depressing message. And God still extends that hand today. Hey, have you ever come to him? Have you ever come and said, God, I'm stained with sin. I've tried everything. I've pursued every pleasure. I've tried every remedy. I've tried every religion. I'm still stained. I feel the guilt in my soul. I can't get rid of it. Have you ever come to God and said, God, please wash me. Wash me whiter than snow. Make me new. If you've never done that, I pray that you would do that this morning. This book of Isaiah, beautiful, monumental book, is as relevant today as it ever was. And I'm excited to begin going through this with you. I pray that our lives and our church will be forever changed because of it. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, I thank you that you are not a God who turns the other way, and ignores our sin. Because sin must be dealt with. I thank you, God, for your word that hits straight and hard. It is because of this that those here today who are saved are saved. It's because we were made aware and convicted of our sin and your Holy Spirit drew us to salvation and cleansing.
I pray, Lord, if there's any believer here today whose life has gotten derailed and they're entangled and embroiled in one of these indictments that was brought against those people, God, I pray you'd set them free right now. I pray you'd give them the courage and the boldness to step out come to you and receive your cleansing and start this year anew. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone who's never accepted Christ as their Savior, I pray today would be the day, January 1st, 2023. I pray today they would call out to you by faith. They would acknowledge their sin and repent and receive the forgiveness that you offer. Thank you, Father, for your gracious hand of mercy and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. to see